And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, August 29th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, military logistics may not be exciting, but they're the only way the latest weapons will do any good. Plus, here's one prescription for getting more qualified civilians into national security work. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, as the Pentagon tries to move more and more towards modern software development practices, it's become clear the DOD budgeting system is a bad fit because of its various colors of money. Does that agile development program count as a procurement, R&D, operations and maintenance? Now, Congress has given a handful of programs permission to experiment with using just one color of money for software. One of them is the Navy's Maritime Tactical Command and Control System. For the difference that's all made, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke with the program manager for Navy Command and Control Systems, Captain David Gast. MTC2, Maritime Tactical Command and Control, is intended to be a planning and battle management aid platform for the Navy. It's to allow us to automate and streamline a lot of the processes that have been done manually and using things like uh, Excel and PowerPoint in the past to lay out strike group schedules, fleet schedules, uh, Navy-wide schedules, for example, uh, and what we're going to be doing hour by hour, day by day, and put that all into one central location where you can see all the information you need to see to make the decisions you need to make about what we do, uh, developing different courses of action and contingencies. So broadly, what made this program a good candidate for a different uh, single color of money that's, that's a little less complicated to work with? So the program, even before the BA-8 pilots started, was already moving in the direction of agile software development processes uh, and really uh, starting to move into DevSecOps, which is where you do development, security, and operations all together uh, as much as you can in a single environment with a very tight feedback loop from the operations side back to the developer side. And we were focused very much, we, we knew we needed to break the sort of large, complex piece of software down into smaller chunks that would allow us to iterate on each piece of the software individually. And BA8 is really perfect for doing that. Uh, as you know, the sort of traditional for the last, you know, 30 at least years has been, you know, you have money set aside for doing development, you have money side, set aside for doing operations, money set aside for doing procurements, uh, and, you know, very tight constraints on what you can do in each of those aspects. But because we're constantly iterating and constantly developing each part of the software, uh, BA8 is exactly what this program needed to be able to accomplish what it had to. So we can uh, make a small improvement, add a small feature to the program, present it to the users in the fleet, get their rapid feedback on it, and then iterate on it. And then they largely stay out there until something drives an update or a change. Uh, but that can happen at any point along the way. So uh, again, with the traditional way, it's it's you've developed it, and then it's in sustainment for the rest of time. Yeah, in, in this particular program, give folks a sense of the cadence of your development and your releases. 
Sure. So uh, the program operates on uh, what we call sprints. Uh, they run on two week sprints. So at the beginning of the sprint, they have a sprint planning meeting that says, what are we going to work on in the next two weeks? And at the end of the sprint, the team presents to uh, the, the sort of fleet representative product owner uh, saying, here's what we've developed. And they do a demonstration of here's how it works. Uh, in most cases, we actually capture a video of that demonstration, which is then later used to illustrate to the fleet, here's how you use this feature. Um, so actually in the in the help section of the of the app, they can go down and see a whole bunch of videos on, you know, here's how to use the different features. But we can and have developed features for this application, uh, a new capability as quickly as two weeks. Um, sometimes they take longer if they're more complex or there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, it may take, you know, two or three, four sprints to get through things. But even still, compared to the traditional pace of uh, software development in the Department of Defense, uh, you know, a month is is pretty fast to be able to develop a new feature. This may be impossible because it's kind of a counterfactual. But, but you know, mm -hmm. having having lived in both of those worlds, thinking again about MTC2, what do you think would be different if you were still wrestling with RDT&E and procurement, uh, different colors, uh, di different buckets? I mean, would you would you not not be able to do those sprints as quickly or would you be able to do them quickly, but there's still more overhead? What What's different in a world where you're doing the traditional funding? So in the case of MTC2, where we basically started over with the code, and I think you've seen the history uh, in, in some of the information we gave you, there was a there was a prototype version of MTC2 that we put on an aircraft carrier for a couple of deployments, got lots and lots of fleet feedback on it. And we realized that to make it do what they really, really wanted to do, uh, we had to break it apart and move to these faster sprint cycles and all that, that sort of thing. Because it's fairly early in its lifetime life cycle, that was still RDT&E budget. Um, so we probably would have been able to do the two-week sprints and the rapid iterations. The problem we would have run into is the deployment uh, piece because that other than you know for a, a limited deployment has to be either procurement or sustainment dollars uh, to roll that out there and we've rolled this program out very very quickly and intend to roll it out even faster going forward the timeline on that shifted several times as we realized we had to basically throw away the code base we had before, start over, replicate the same functions, but with a better, more secure, more reliable, more agile software uh, architecture that initially slowed down our fielding rate. But once we got that minimum viable product out there and on the first ship, we were able to put it on the second ship a couple of weeks later and the next ship the week after that and go back and provide the first update to the first ship a couple of weeks after that. And we're actually now about to release the fifth uh, version of MTC2 the, with new features and new upgrades since January. We've put it on 15 ships and two shore stations since January, and we're averaging about one a week uh, after that. And that rapid pivot from development to deployment uh, would have been much, much harder with the traditional funding. Doing it in those small chunks, does it also reduce the chances that you're going to break something really important and really huge? 
Absolutely. That's a, that is a fantastic question. The way we've broken it apart is there's well-defined interfaces between each of the pieces of MTC2. Right now, MTC2 is over 40 containers make up the application. The first instance that we put on a ship was 35 containers. Now, about six months later, we're up to over 40. And that number will just keep going up because rather than having to go back into the code base and make changes in there uh, to make it talk to other things, you just bring a sec separate piece of code and each of them does run independently. So back to your question, yes, absolutely. If one container crashes, for instance, the whole application doesn't crash. It's just that one uh, container. Uh, one of the uh, great illustrations that I, I found out as we were moving down this path actually is like Amazon.com, their website. The buy it now button on that website is its own microservice, its own container. If that fails, you can still do the add to cart and it's completely unrelated to the buy it now because why? Amazon wants to make sure you can buy stuff from them uh, if you're in the mood to do so. In the same way, if one feature of MTC2 crashes for some reason, all the rest of the pieces of it will still continue to work in exactly the same way. Captain David Gast, the program manager for Navy Command and Control Systems, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, here's one prescription for getting more qualified civilians into national security work. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. As threats to the United States multiply, the government will need growing numbers of capable civilians in national security. But creaky apparatus for hiring and clearing people gets in the way. That's from a detailed look by the Center for a New American Security. We get more now from senior fellow Catherine Kuzminski. Ms. Kuzminski, good to have you in. Thanks for having me. What made you look at the civilian workforce? And first of all, let's define our terms. That's probably half the civilian workforce of the government could be connected in some way to national security? That's right. It's a pretty substantial portion. Uh, there's over 800,000 civilians in DOD and the military departments alone. Uh, we also include things like the State Department, USAID, and parts of the government that you might not think about, so parts of the Department of the Treasury or the Department of Justice. Certainly, we've seen a lot of attention paid in the last couple of years to recruitment, military recruitment, but we forget that on the other side of that are a uh, network of civilians who both support and lead the military um, in our broader national security aims. And are there particular challenges to the government for getting people in to do that type of work versus getting people in to do procurement or housing policy analysis or oversight of programs in an inspector's general office, that type of thing. Certainly. So there's a significant amount of technical requirements that we have for especially our more senior civilians in national security. We think of things not only like STEM um, and cyber experts, but also thinking about uh, foreign experience, foreign language experience, in a lot of cases, a law degree or an advanced policy 
policy degree, deep data analytics. These are things that make the federal government run and make our policies operate well. And the challenge is that we have a number of people who are willing to spend the time to get those credentials. They're also willing to take a series of unpaid internships in Washington, D.C. It's a very geographically based career field, and it's not a cheap city to live in. And so we see folks taking out big student loans to pay for graduate degrees and then taking these unpaid internships. So there there starts to become some challenges to actually accessing the paying jobs within the system. And part of the military's problem in recruiting new people for uniform services is that even though the country is growing, only, what do they say, something like 19 or 20 percent of 18-year-old youth are even capable of serving for whatever reason. They have criminal records or mm-hmm. they can't pass this or that test. They're not physically fit, whatever the case might be. Is a kind of parallel thing happening in the civilian side? The country's growing, but more and more graduates are coming out of four-year institutions that can't read or do math. It's a combination of things. So when we think of the military recruiting example, there's both the ability to meet standards and the interest in serving. And those two factors are also present on the civilian side. So when we think of those who are are able to meet the standards, we are looking at a highly educated population and, and individuals who've spent years building both their academic credentials and their experience. But we also see real competition for those skill sets among the private sector or out in Silicon Valley or up on Wall Street. And so capturing the part of the market that's interested in taking their talents to serve in federal government where they might earn less and they might have longer days, but they're really tied to the sense of mission is really important. Yes, because there's a difference between the private sector and the public sector in just the norms and culture that surrounds civil service and in the way agencies operate. And then there are particular demands on security of people or security practices by people working in Mm -hmm. national security that may or may not be appealing to people. You know, some agencies, you have to leave your cell phone in a little tiny locker all day, this kind of thing. Yeah. And and we also see, we conducted a survey of both undergraduate and graduate students, and then also folks who are already in the professional workforce or who might have had government service in the past. And we found in our survey sample of about 260 individuals, when we asked the question, would you rather take a job in the federal government, your dream job in the federal government, or a similar job in the private sector that pays twice as much? A, what are the considerations that you're weighing as you make that decision? And B, what is your decision? And it came down to exactly 50-50, which was surprising to us for a group of individuals who took the time to actually take this survey because they must have some sort of interest in government service to sit down and take this time. And so we did a little more digging on, well, what is it? Is it the pay? And the reality is it was not the pay per se. It was the ability to start their career or start their job right away. There's the expectation among American youth um, and I think among all generations that if you apply for a job, you get a job offer that you start within a month, certainly within about two weeks is the norm. But what happens if you have to wait a year and a half to two years to make it in the door in the first place? And as I mentioned, they're already taking out student loan debt, living in an expensive city and taking a series of unpaid internships. It becomes really challenging to hold on to the dream of serving in government if a private sector option is something that's available right away. We're speaking with Catherine Kuzminski. She's senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. And what about the clearance process? Because that seems to gum up the works. And no matter what they do, it always takes a long time. And now there's reports about the apparatus for doing this Mm -hmm. is late and not working as well as it should, costing a lot of money. 
just in the news reports of recent days. What about the security clearance process itself? Is that an impediment to building or maintaining that civilian workforce? Certainly. So, And this is a perennial problem. It's not a new one. And in fact, the federal government has made great strides since about 2019 when there's been a series of reforms to increasing the efficiency of the process. But it's still a lengthy process. And one of the things that was surprising in both our survey work and our group analysis was that the effects for first-generation Americans, we simultaneously heard consistently that they had an extra sense of mission. They recognize what this country provided for their family. They want to serve. And at the same time that it was really hindering their ability to make it through the clearance process, whether it's because they still maintain foreign contacts in family members who still live overseas, or because it's a bit more challenging on the financial side of the house, it has led to some frustrations for them in the clearance process. And it was not a question we initially intended to set out looking at what are the impacts on first-generation Americans, but it was a fairly significant and repeated uh, finding that we had. To say nothing about the form you have to fill out, That's right. which is epic <laughs> in its size, and uh, I'm not sure anyone could get all the answers right, even if you, you were trying to. Now, you FOIA'd some data on the profile of people serving from the Office of Personnel Management. What did you need to FOIA from them and what were you trying to learn and what did you learn from that information? Yeah, so one of the questions that we had going in was it had been 20 years since 9-11 when we kicked off this project in 2021 and the national security apparatus grew substantially over those two decades. So one of the questions that we had was as the national security apparatus grew over time, did representation among the federal government increase proportionately to what we see in society? or did old trends hold? And so what we looked at was data based on gender, race, and ethnicity, and at each GS level. So the more junior levels through the more senior levels. And one of the questions was, who are we recruiting in? And then another question we were looking at was, is there evidence that people who join the federal government as a civil servant early on in their career, do they have a promotion path and do we retain them? We saw varied outcomes across the federal government. The Department of the Air Force civilian workforce was the most diverse that we saw across the military services and DOD. But still at the aggregate, it's about 25% of the overall DOD workforce in the GS system are women and 18% are minorities. So we still have some work to do in terms of the national security workforce representing broader U.S. statistics. Right. I guess the question then becomes, is this a function of the hiring process or is it a function of the applicants? Are the people that you want that are not represented, that are out there doing something else, applying in the first place. That's right. And that's a real question we were looking at. What is the sense of possibility that you could join the federal workforce? And we saw that there is kind of an over-representation on the coasts um, and in big cities and that we're missing large swaths of Americans, not because they're not interested, but because they don't necessarily see a path from how they get from a state school in the Midwest to a career in Washington, D.C., Yes, because some of the Army and military elements, and I think some of the civilian national security types of related agencies, have established partnerships and grant programs with HBCUs and so on, Spanish-serving institutions. Maybe over time that will help seed the application pool so that greater representation across the population will be making its way into government. 
That's right. And also the geographic representation. There are efforts to educate college career counselors or professors. One of the challenges that we heard from our focus group participants was that if you went to a school in the Midwest or in a place that didn't necessarily have ties to the federal government, even those advising them didn't know the difference between GS levels or what an appropriate application level might be for a federal position. And that's something that the federal government or even nonprofit Profits can do a better job of educating the educators on pathways, potential pathways for government service. And just briefly, what sorts of recommendations have you come up with, or are you still working on those? Yeah, so there's a couple of recommendations. One is at the congressional or executive level. So one of the big challenges we see is that there's a number of federal fellowships that are provided, the Boren Fellowship, uh, Fulbright, that take highly competent Americans and send them overseas to engage with the local population to really immerse in language learning. Particularly for the Born Fellows, those language skills tend to be languages that matter to our national security infrastructure, which might also mean that they're coming in contact with individuals who then hold up the security clearance process on the back end. And so one recommendation is to think through how you start the clearance process for someone you've already vetted through the fellowship program before they leave the country and get that process rolling and marking the fact that you know that they're going to come in contact with foreign individuals that's the purpose of the federally funded and highly selective program that's out there. Another area is thinking through how college and university employees can better educate themselves on educating current college students. And we do say that having a university focus is important because most of these jobs do require a college degree. And so enabling them both A, to access the alumni networks that might have already ended up in government, and B, just educating them on on the different processes. And then lastly, individuals do bear some responsibility as well, but no one tells them up front that, hey, you might want to keep a list of every address you've ever had, or you might need to keep a list of foreign contacts, or if you're studying overseas, that you need someone to see your living environment to be able to report on that for your security clearance. And it's too late to learn that when you've returned. Catherine Kuzminski is Senior Fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to her study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors make plans for a messy start to the next fiscal year. But first, military logistics may not be exciting, but they're the only way the latest weapon systems will do any good. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Should the United States need to project kinetic power far away, the decisive factor would be logistics. Yet, according to a detailed study by Brookings, the military has neglected logistics in recent years. For what that means and some of the consequences, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Brookings Senior Fellow and Logistics Study Author Michael O'Hanlon. So reading through the study that you all did regarding defense logistics, U.S. defense logistics, you know, it appears that you're trying to do a little uh, nudging here to wake folks up to the less sexy side of American defense, but a vitally important aspect of American defense. So why don't we just start from the beginning on what, you know, made you want to take this on and, you know, what were, was there something that occurred that, you know, made you start worrying or you wanted to dig deeper into this? 
Yeah, thank you. Well, of course, it's an important topic that we are always reminded needs to be brought back to a higher level of visibility than it often is because there's the old cliche, you know, civilians think strategy, generals think logistics, and logistics are not as sexy. It's about moving stuff around, having spare parts where they need to be, getting food and fuel and water to people. You know, it's it's not always as glamorous as flying the latest high-tech bomber or drone or what have you. There's that just bureaucratic and institutional tendency to neglect it. Then there's the fact the United States has become spoiled in modern times, in a sense, by being able to wage war. Obviously, that's no great benefit. So we're not spoiled in the sense of having too much peace. But when we have fought, we've fought enemies that are tactically very tough, but strategically incapable of interrupting our major intercontinental transport and resupply and local logistics efforts. We could build up forces 30 years ago in Saudi Arabia, then liberate Kuwait sort of at our whim at a timing and with a preparation that we dictated and Saddam Hussein couldn't really influence. As tough as the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS have been to fight, you know, street by street, block by block and road by road, they have not been able to interfere with our communications, with our long distance planes and aircraft, with our big bases. And all this would almost certainly be very different if we ever, God forbid, fought uh, China. But even if we fought North Korea, you'd have to expect a lot of missile attacks against bases. You'd have to expect uh, maybe some mini submarines trying to sink ships as they approached Korean ports with supplies. And so on top of that, you have all the cyber threats that certainly North Korea, certainly China and Russia could pose to our forces and the and the command and control systems that direct them, that keep track of where things are. And so for all those reasons, plus the fact that I had a, two very good colleagues last year, an Air Force logistician and a Marine Corps logistician who were on military education assignment to Brookings, we decided to put our heads together and write some reminders about the central importance of this endeavor and this part of military operations today. And so would you categorize the state of military logistics as, you know, everything's working fine, but it's not very malleable, I guess would be the word you would use. It may not be able to respond to a threat to an actual, you know, infrastructure or even just taking out one of our air carriers. You know, what what would that mean if that were to actually occur? I wouldn't say that our logistics today is terrible. And I'll say why in a second, but I, I don't think we have enough capacity. We simply lack adequate numbers of certain kinds of ships and even airplanes for long distance transport. Also, some of our computer and communication systems that are designed to track all this stuff are too complicated. I think that modern American logistics are not atrocious. They're not in terrible shape, but there are a number of shortfalls. And this is often, again, the result of the fact they tend to get underappreciated relative to combat platforms and major modernization efforts. And by the way, when I say logistics, I'm thinking about the planes and ships that move supplies and people. I'm thinking about the computer systems that track all of that and coordinate it. And I'm thinking of the bases and the airfields and ports where we have to access and unload and reload and so forth. So that's what I think of as the broader logistics enterprise, not the combat operations per se, but things that support those operations, including also equipment, maintenance and repair. And when I think of all of that, and when we 
again, reflect on the history that you and I have been discussing already. What we remember in the modern era is the United States has gotten better at transportation over the course of, let's say, the lifetimes of those of us who are 50, 60 years old, because after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and seemed to be threatening the Persian Gulf, at that time, we created the Rapid Deployment Force, then later Central Command and Transportation Command. We wound up getting much more focused on logistics to a place where we couldn't prepare over many decades like in Europe. And so we built up fast sea lift ships and roll-on, roll-off ships and fleets that were not about bombing enemies, but were about transporting supply. We prioritized those things within the U.S. military and got much better at them. And we saw the results of that in Operation Desert Storm in 1991, and really also the resupply efforts for the long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan this century, which may not have been as successful as we wished in tactical or in broader state building terms, but they were quite impressive in logistics terms for the most part. Unfortunately, we also developed the assumption that logistics would be largely uncontested, that if we could manage just the throughput side of things, that the enemy would not be able to get in the way. And that may have been true against the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein, but it almost certainly would not be true against North Korea, Russia, China. And so we need to think about logistics as being fundamentally contested, fundamentally challenged by the enemy in any future war. And of course, the goal here is not to fight and win that war. It's to deter that war by an enemy not thinking that it sees an Achilles heel in our defense preparation. I don't think that North Korea, Russia, or even China would really want to take on our fighter pilots, our you know carrier platforms, our tank crews, our combat capability. But if they thought they could somehow keep us from accessing the theater where they wanted to do other mischief, China taking Taiwan, North Korea attacking South Korea, Russia conquering Ukraine, or maybe even the Baltic states, then they might be tempted to try to sort of put us on the mat by taking out our bases, our communications, our lift long enough that they could achieve their local aggressive purposes. And then perhaps we would not be willing or able to get back in time to reverse that aggression or to prevent it in the first place. If, if they're going to have a theory of victory, I think it's going to be something like that, which means they're going to be more likely to feel encouraged if they see a defect in our logistics and our transport and our command and control than if they see you know, one, two, few fighter squad squadrons or bomber wings or, or uh, you know, brigade combat teams. I don't think they're going to persuade themselves that they can, you know, outfight us and outslug us on the battlefield, but they might persuade themselves they can keep us from even getting to that battlefield. And that's why logistics are so important for deterrence, not just for warfighting. We're talking to Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. And so what about joint warfare operations and where do logistics stand uh, when we work with our allies that are overseas and maybe even closer to the actual battlefield itself? Do we handle the logistics for our own or are we relying on our partners to kind of fill in some of these gaps that we may have? Well, the partners are going to be good in many cases on their own territory or in the immediate environs of their own territory, but they're generally even less apt than we are to develop the long-range power projection capabilities. Because after all, we are the world's preeminent long-range fighter. Here we are in our North American paradise, but most of the wars we prepare to fight or do fight are in Eurasia. So we are in the business and in the habit of moving 3,000, 5,000, 8,000 miles to go wage war. And of course, a lot of people will say, well, why do we why do we think that way? Why do we operate that way? And of course, the reason is when we left Eurasia to its own devices, we got two world wars out of the process. And so ever since 1945, our basic guiding principle has been, don't leave those Eurasians to their own devices. Uh, they 
they won't necessarily be able to solve their problems. And if we work together with like-minded states, largely along the littoral of Eurasia, then we can probably do a pretty good job of, of being successful. But those states are usually only going to be good at helping us once we get our stuff close to them. So Japan and South Korea are fantastic for helping us move around their territories and be able to resupply our forces within their domestic economies and infrastructures. Japan provides a lot of bases. So if we want to get to South Korea or to Taiwan or somewhere else, that we can often use Japanese facilities for that as well as stepping stones, lily pads, refueling bases, operating bases, etc. And you can go through each of the major theaters, the Middle East and Europe being the other two, where we have major plans and a lot of forces. And in each case, the story is pretty much the same, that the local partners are very good locally but they're not so good at helping us get our forces to their territory. And in a place like Europe, they're not even all that good always at helping each other. So the countries of Western Europe that would have to maneuver and move to get to battlefields, let's say in the Baltic region, would not necessarily get a lot of help from Germany and Poland along the way. They often don't have enough transport capability themselves in the case of, let's say, Britain and France, Canada, Spain, Italy, but also the territories through which they might need to traverse to get to a battlefield are often not properly prepared for the movement of combat equipment. So often bridges aren't up to snuff in Germany and Poland, for example. And once you get over into Ukraine, then you would have, if you ever were trying to move stuff there, you know, and of course we do move a lot of stuff there right now, but then you have challenges of the rail lines, maybe different gauge, all sorts of things uh, can get in the way. So as a rule, allies are good for logistics on their own territories and sometimes for the area immediately adjacent as with Japan and Northeast Asia. But no other American ally really has the ability to move forces very far on its own. You bring up the logistics triad and I want to focus in on one aspect of it just because it has you know probably the most or has seen the most change over the years and that's the digital logistics systems obviously they've made things more convenient and efficient but you're also going to sacrifice a little bit there because you open yourself up to more vulnerabilities when it comes to cyber attacks and whatnot um what can you tell me about the state of DOD's uh, digital logistics systems right now? And are they being updated enough to patch up those security loopholes? Well, this was something I really learned a lot from my Air Force colleague, Jason Wolf, Colonel Jason Wolf, who's now been reassigned and he's now down in the uh, North Carolina area working with the Air Force. But he, as a professional logistician, as well as Marcos Melendez, my other co-author, both recognize just how many separate IT systems were being used by different parts of the military, different services. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you've got to fight as a joint force. So what matters is your overall aggregate capability and your ability to work together, not any one services specific contributions. And moreover, if you have these multiple systems, not only is it harder to have them speak to each other and track each other's data flows, information flows, but it's harder to keep them up to snuff with cybersecurity. And so a strong adversary can go find one of the weaker links, whichever one of those, I think roughly half dozen component IT capabilities today are least hardened, least resilient to attack, might be the one that the North Koreans or the Chinese or the Russians sneak into and mess everything else up that way, or maybe even access some of the other IT systems and you know put in false data, uh, confuse people as to where things are, erase files, 
make a mess of logistics. And then you wind up with sort of what we had in Operation Desert Storm, which is all sorts of stuff all over the theater, but no one really is quite sure where it is. And Desert Storm, it didn't matter. This was back in 1991, of course, the liberation of Kuwait. We were so strong against Saddam and we had so much excess capability after the Cold War with a drawdown that hadn't yet even really fully played out that it didn't matter if we were inefficient. But in a future war, it really could. And so having six separate IT systems is probably not the way to go. All right. So that's just one of the issues that needs solving. Let's uh, let's fix the rest of the problems right here and now, Michael Hanlon. What can uh, the Defense Department do to restore this function? And what do experts like yourself and logisticians in the actual uh, defense realm hoping to see in the next few years to shore up these issues that may come into play in a future war? Well, I think Jason was pretty effective and cogent in our paper, basically explaining you need to have a lead agency and empower somebody to find that one central, unified, resilient IT system. So that's a piece of it. And so part of that's just a bureaucratic decision about who's going to be empowered and then an implementation decision where hopefully DOD buys good software this time and doesn't buy flawed stuff, which has sometimes been the problem as well. You're in this dilemma where you really want to tap into commercial software to the extent possible, and yet commercial software often has bugs and historically often hasn't been as resilient because people didn't think it had to be. Now, luckily, some of that's changed because a lot of companies by now have gotten attacked and hacked. And so Microsoft and others that build the world's best software, but usually build it for private companies, not for the Department of Defense, they have gotten more serious about cybersecurity over the last 10, 12, 15 years. And so in that sense, DOD can look to commercial software, perhaps more than it might have a while ago, and hope that that commercial software will will not only be much better than software made just specifically for the Department of Defense, but also be hardened enough to withstand cyber attack. So that's one encouraging trend line. Another encouraging anecdote or observation, it's not quite the same as a direct answer to your question, because it's not quite an action plan for us, but it shows the possibilities. The Ukrainians have really stood up beautifully against Russian cyber attack for the last year and a half, partly because they were getting attacked before February 24th, 2022. And so they built up resilience, partly because we went over and helped them with some of our software that's become much better in these last few years. And so that illustrates that it is possible to find solutions to some of these challenges and not just throw up our arms and feel like DOD or U.S. intelligence community software is just never going to be good enough and resilient enough to be able to get the job done. And the last thing I would point to, it's not quite in the exact cyber realm, but it's related. About 10, 15 years ago, we started getting very worried that our big satellites were sitting ducks for attack. They were just too expensive, too vulnerable. We depended on small numbers of extremely costly high-end systems systems that were orbiting Earth in predictable paths or orbits that an enemy could attack. And so we started diversifying our satellite fleets with things like Starlink, Elon Musk's data flow system, and other kinds of microsatellites that create swarming capability. So if any one small satellite is lost or destroyed, you've got others that can fill in for it. And that same kind of concept of building in redundancy as well as resilience can be applied to some extent to the cyber world. So it's not quite a direct answer to your question. Like I say, I don't, I don't, I haven't written the plan and I'm not capable myself of writing the plan that solves this problem. But I do see a lot of encouraging technological trends that would indicate it is at least partially solvable. Now, we never want to assume any one IT system will definitely withstand uh, attack in time 
a crisis or war. And so you do need ability to recover, fallback options, you know, second best options. We should never just get so confident about our new software techniques that we think we can definitely keep our systems up and running continuously in a future crisis. They still could be taken down, but a lot more can be done to make the adversary's job more difficult in that regard. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, you mentioned a, a lead agency to tackle all these issues. There is a defense agency with logistics in its name, the Defense Logistics Agency. What role do they play in the scope of things? And were you able to analyze their activities and how they affect any of these vulnerabilities we may have? It's an excellent question. And I'm going to have to apologize in advance for the limits of my knowledge. And I hope it's not unfair to anybody. But if I think about the history of the Defense Logistics Agency in the context of, you know, the Goldwater-Nichols reforms of the 1980s, the creation of Transportation Command and the Rapid Deployment Force, all the stuff that happened in the 70s and 80s that made us get more focused on this problem, I think of DLA fitting into that overall effort by trying to think about adequate stocks of equipment, materiel, fuel, spare parts, think about adequate prioritization of logistics within the budget universe, give a prominent leader from that agency to be at the you know central board of directors level within DOD, that logistics always has an institutional voice along with transportation command and arguably maybe even strategic command and cyber command. They're all thinking about one dimension or another of logistics. But DLA to my mind, and this is where I worry about being a little bit unfair, it's not really meant as a criticism of DLA, but it's a reflection of where we are. I don't see DLA as ever having been charged with making our logistics system resilient to enemy attack, because that's where its mandate overlaps with the combatant commands that are geographically located that have historically, since Goldwater Nichols of 1986, been our lead warfighting organizations within the Department of Defense. And logistics really needs to be central to the way that Indo-Pacific Command, European Command, Central Command, and the others think about their operations. It can't be just delegated to a side support agency because the logistics are central to the war effort and they are only going to be successful if combat capabilities are used to protect them. And if combat capabilities and forces are diversified, spread around, made more resilient, such that those combat forces themselves are survivable. In other words, you can't separate logistics over here and fighting over there, give the fighting to the combatant commands and just have somebody else take care of the logistics as a more mundane you know, matter like going to the grocery store to make sure you have your refrigerator stocked every Sunday. The logistics are central to the fight. And therefore, DLA, uh, as important as it is, as effective as it is within its own mandate, as sort of a second tier DOD organization by comparison with the services themselves or with the combatant commands, it can't really be expected to handle this problem, you know, separately, sequestered over here on the side. It's got to all it can really do ultimately is feed in its efforts into what the combatant commands and the joint force are trying to do in a more integrated way, because that's where logistics has to be ultimately as an integrated key element of the overall combat and joint force. Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at Brookings, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. There's much more to the interview. We'll post it in its entirety, along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors make plans for a messy start to the next fiscal year. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The main question now is whether Congress will enact a continuing resolution come October 1st or whether we'll have a government shutdown. Either way, things will get messy come September 30th. Here with some shutdown preparation tips for contractors, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. It seems like we keep coming back to this topic, but Congress keeps coming back to the same tropes over the budget over and over again. And so it looks pretty likely maybe a short shutdown. Tom, I do. I do think we're at a better than 50-50 chance for a shutdown at the beginning of the year. I would be the first person in line to be happy if I'm wrong. But the way it's shaping up right now, you have to really follow, uh, particularly what House leaders and House rank and file members are saying. If you follow that, then it really does look like we're on track for a possible shutdown. And Tom, this one could be more than a day or two. So if you're a government contractor, I think it's really important to understand what the long-term impact could be on your business. Things like not being able to get paid are probably at the top of the list, as well as not getting any uh, new business coming in, not being able to have business meetings. Tom, it even goes deeper than that, though. If you were planning on going to government conferences and doing some networking, if you're doing that while the government is still shut down, you're not going to be seeing a lot, read any, government employees at these events. So depending on the length of a shutdown, it really could be disruptive to things like relationship building, future business development, let alone getting paid on work that you've already performed. I think people sometimes overlook, and it's been a couple years, I guess, three, four years, I don't know, whenever we had the last long shutdown, which seemed like an eternity, it was like close to a month, is that government employees you know, legally, and then they've adopted this culturally, they can't do anything even on their own dime, so to speak. They're not allowed to do anything official, even if they want to volunteer and meet with vendors or go to a conference, because it's illegal for them to actually do that. That's exactly right. And you think about some of the high-profile conferences we have coming up in October, ones where you get a lot of government speakers who are not only talking about what their plans are and what their potential business opportunities are. But they're also there to network and interact with industry because they know they don't have all the answers themselves. If that doesn't happen, that just leads to one of the more inefficient ways to run a government. Uh, Not to mention that while things are shut down, part of the government still has to run, Tom. And while government employees may get paid for back time when the government eventually reopens. The same is not true for contractors. Yeah, so any particular advice on contractor preparation? Is there anything they can do except sort of hunker down and cover their eyes? Well, I know that this is a time of year when companies are trying to get as much business in the door as possible, and I still think that should be priority one. Uh, Strike while the iron is hot, Tom. Uh, At the same time, I would not wait past September 15th to try to have those discussions about what comes next with my federal customer. They're going to increasingly be in their own internal meetings, their own continuity of operations planning discussions, and it may be very difficult to get them on the line or via email to have a discussion about what that means for you. So very quickly, you know, by the middle of September, they may not have all of the answers, but, you know, you mentioned earlier We have danced this dance before. It may have been a couple of years, but we still kind of vaguely remember the tune in our heads. So it's important to have those conversations when you can have them. 
We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And the other issue I wanted to discuss with you is presuming normal processes of government and the awarding of multiple award contracts. There's a lot of max in the cooking, and some of them have to do with small business, some are non-small business. Knowing what you actually are is not all that simple nowadays, is it? Tom, it really is not. And the Small Business Administration has issued a series of changes really over the course of the past year, but particularly in the last six months. And as a government contractor, you should not really be able to rely, you shouldn't expect to rely on whether a government contracting officer thinks you're small or not. This is a time when all small government contractors who have a question about their size status really need to take ownership of that situation because you can be small on one day and on one procurement vehicle and not small at all on another. And there are a series of complex gates that you have to run, Tom, depending on the type of contract vehicles. If you're on a GSA or VA multiple award schedule contract, there's one set of rules. If you're on a MAC that was set aside for small business, there's another set of rules. There's still another set, Tom, for uh, a MAC that was awarded to businesses of all sizes. So if you're a small business, there are three different answers potentially to the question of whether or not your company is small based just on the contract vehicle. If this isn't something that you've read up on lately, you really ought to do that. Because if you don't and you miscertify or improperly certify yourself as small, Tom, your company could be on the hook for renewed uh, acquisition charges if the government has to go out and do another competition, uh, definitely on the hook for legal fees, and you could potentially be facing more severe penalties like suspension or debarment. So it just really isn't worth it to throw your hands up and say, I can't get it. Uh, it really is worth your time to do a little investigation and make sure that you know your size in any given situation. Yeah, that's one of those yeah. good reminders that, yes, there's a partnership between government and industry, but if industry steps outside of what they're supposed to be doing, especially in something complex like this, you could end up in a false claims situation. You claim something you were are and falsely in one situation that might have been valid in another situation. I guess it all points to the growing importance of the compliance officer. Uh, really, you do uh, have to listen to your compliance officer. Uh, as I've said here before, compliance is pennies on the dollar. Not every company likes to hear that, but it's really true. And you can, as a small business, end up with a False Claims Act case. And those can be very expensive. If you're sitting in front of the Department of Justice alleging false claims and you're looking at, you know, seven, potentially eight figures worth of direct costs, not to mention the indirect cost to your company, and it's just not worth it. So make sure you know on this contract, I'm one thing on the this contract, I may be another and tell your federal customer because they want to do business with you probably almost regardless of your size. Uh, if you're good, if you have an established relationship, so uh, it pays to be honest. And all of this is in the context of a trend that should be favorable to contractors, and that is just the growing amount of federal spending that includes contracting that we're seeing over the last couple of years and looks like will happen when there finally is a budget for 24. 
That's right, Tom. One of the things that people tend to look at a lot when we're looking at government business is how much the Department of Defense spends. But if you look at figures that were recently released by Bloomberg government, civilian agency spending grew by 53% between FY18 and FY22. That's a pretty sizable jump. And while there are different things that led to that, it's a good news story for most government contractors because it's not just all being concentrated in one area. We're talking about increased spending in professional services, in IT, in veterans benefits and medical care. And as you point out, that's likely to continue into FY24. So this is a nice market to do business in. We saw a substantial amount of spending in FY22. FY23 should finish equally as strong. So if you want to be able to participate in a market that is rich with opportunities, you definitely want to make sure you've got your compliance house in order. Yeah, the water is great. Come on in. You just have to get over that big seawall before you can get there. <laughs> Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Army is bringing the concepts that make up zero trust to the tactical edge. That's not so easy. The tactical environment includes operational technology, weapon systems, and typical IT systems. They've all got to work in an intermittent, disconnected, or simply low-bandwidth environment. For insight on the first steps to bring robust cyber capabilities to the edge, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the director of the Army's Functional Management Office for Zero Trust and director of the Unified Network Task Force, Colonel Michael Smith. We have to leverage what we can from the enterprise and develop add-on solutions uh, for a tactical environment that achieves the same outcomes within the enterprise. So challenging, we've completed our enterprise gap analysis. We are currently working on our tactical edge zero-trust gap analysis we did not have 12 to 18 months to do do this analysis, so we're going to perform this in a very deliberate uh, manner, but very expeditiously, and hopefully within a couple months we will have a very good product that is very definitive on where we need to apply some resources within the tactical space. How much can you beg, borrow, steal from the enterprise gap analysis than you can apply to tactical? Or are they, it's like apples and oranges, they're maybe both fruit, but they're not similar in the least bit? Yeah, I think you're right. I think what we're leveraging from the enterprise gap analysis is really just the methodology. We're going to apply that same methodology, and it's really just aligning the pillars and the capabilities with the existing capabilities uh, in our infrastructure, and then developing a construct where we're doing analysis of alternatives to divest of specific technologies and or invest or partner with other academic industries, sister service, et cetera. So it's the methodology that's important that we can apply across the rest of our gaps across our architecture. One thing about cybersecurity is you're never at zero, you're never at 100, you're always, always in the middle. And I think that's why this gap analysis is so important. What is the added complexity when you talk about the tactical side, weapon systems, operational technology, mission partner environments, and the, and the like. What's the additional challenge you have there? I previously spoke to what the Army is currently working on, and that's specifically enterprise nipper and sipper. We're leaning into the tactical edge now, and we're also working with organizational networks, uh, which are really bifurcated, isolated networks from the DOTA and A. 
But to your point, weapon systems, control systems, uh, mission partner environment, that is the challenge. Uh, a lot of those technologies are legacy, for example, control systems, and they do not touch the uh, the Army's portion of the Doden network. Uh, so we have to figure out how to apply zero trust principles against their existing capabilities and or identify any gaps that, that we may apply some other policy type things to, to achieve the same outcomes. But there are a lot of instances for control systems, operational technology, ICS SCADA, that we do not want to include within our enterprise zero trust architecture because we may cause some significant damage to some systems. Especially when you talk about control systems, operational technology, those, uh, you mentioned HVAC systems is a perfect example. Those were built in a way that are very, not not necessarily cyber friendly, meaning they weren't built with cyber in mind. This is definitely one of those bolt on, not built in type of occasions. When you walk through the gap analysis, are you taking, if you will, a, because of the time constraints you, you face, are you taking a, the methodology is we'll look at a, a portion of the control systems, a portion of the weapon systems, and use that as a kind of a, the broader understanding of, okay, here's generally speaking what we need to think about for these types of systems going forward for zero trust, or how, how is the gap analysis happening? Because as you said, you don't have a ton of time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely uh, right in uh, your thought process. So we're going to take a look at a subset of weapon systems and a subset of control systems and identify kind of the, the, the basic architecture that applies to those, those uh, components. Once we identify that, we identify the gaps, we will push that guidance out to the larger commands that house those control systems and or weapon systems, and it will be up to them to really apply the zero trust principles in, in that fashion. But due to time, as you mentioned, it will just be a subset. Just looking over the next... 12 to 18 months, you want to get that gap analysis done in the next few months. What are the next steps from there? Do you expect a, lack of a better word, zero trust strategy for tactical systems? Or what do you think is going to come from this gap analysis beyond ways to improve <laughs> these systems? I think the best way to put this is uh, zero trust is a journey. Uh, we're never going to be at 100%. We're never going to have a 100% zero trust architecture. It's going to be a continuous process. Even beyond 2027, things are going to evolve. Adversary threats going to evolve. And the key to the gap analysis is really divestment of capability that doesn't meet zero trust principles uh, and or investment of capability. Uh, so that's what we're looking to do. So to get to that, we have to figure out where the resources are at. So we're going to need to align resources if we have to invest in new technologies. Uh, that's been the challenge on the enterprise side, and that'll be the challenge in the tactical space as we move into it. We are so embedded with systems that have been applied over the last five to ten years. They're very difficult to take out of the architecture and place something new in because they're already integrated. So to integrate a new solution is going to take time. Uh, but it's really applying the resources that can fund those and sustain those over time. When we talk about zero trust, almost everyone I hear you know, always wants to begin with identity access and credential management, ICAM. One of the things you mentioned here at Thames is this challenge of applying ICAM capabilities to certain tactical environments, specifically maybe weapon systems, specifically at the edge. What's the thinking now? How are you starting to pilot, do research? 
where are you at with trying to solve this complex problem? Within ASALT, very specific PMs, we are looking to implement or apply the Army's ICAM portion in the tactical space, specifically detail environments, uh, and that'll allow us to have a a directory, a compute and store capability that provides a last known good, so we're not always pulling from cloud-type services. Uh, we'll have a capability, an on-prem capability within a tactical formation that allows us to pull services from ICAM that'll authenticate and authorize uh, access to data applications. From a user perspective, we're also looking at soldier tokens, more from a role-based access control versus an attribute-based. And that allows that token to be used by multiple soldiers within one platform for speed of access and decision-making versus relying on a single soldier with a single credential that may or not be with us throughout the entire fight. Uh, so we're doing role-based soldier tokens uh, that can be used expeditiously. You mentioned you all are working closely with PEO soldiers, so I don't know if this is something more in their world, but it's always of interest when people say, well, what will happen to the common access card? What will the future look like? It seems like this role-based uh, access token for the soldier will begin to replace that. Is Where are you at with that pilot? Is, is Are you able to offer any... We're just the beginning stages. We've had some testing. Any updates you're able to give? Yeah, I think we're really in the beginning stages of just piloting with some formation, tactical formations. Uh, we're really trying to combine that effort uh, out of PO Soldier with POC3T's ICAM effort uh, so that they feed the same Army ICAM systems and they're compatible and interoperable. Uh, so really just the, a nascent effort to take an operational requirement to get away from CAT cards in a tactical space and use something that's more simpler and faster for soldiers in specific roles to use. So partnering soldier with C3T. I always have to ask the timeline question because this gets a, it's going to get a lot of excitement for people because while everyone loves to hate the common access cards, is this something you, in the because you're so early, would you, do you have hope that 24, 25, 26, you could actually roll it out much more broader, assuming obviously all the, the big assumptions we're going to make here, it works, it's affordable, it's, it's secure, all, all those important things? I think that's definitely a doable timeline. Right now, we have a username and password. So anything better than that is definitely an improvement, definitely better security for the information, the data that our soldiers need to access. We do have alternative multi-factor authentication means within those formations. But really the goal is to get to that token versus having CAT cards with credentials and they're individualized with attributes. So looking towards that soldier token is the future. I know there's going to be a lot of interest and in, we'll watch that closely, obviously, as it continues down the path. The last thing I just want to touch upon is you also mentioned this idea of uh, developing a test evaluation master plan starting summer 2024. Walk me through what that is, what that looks like, and why this matters to the, the bigger discussion here we're having around Zero Trust. The DOD's ZT strategy laid out very specific directives that the services have to achieve. Those are the 152 activities fully integrated, but those really, they're defined by a measure of performance. And what I mean by that is, did you accomplish this one activity? Yes. It really doesn't talk to the measure of effectiveness. Hey, did this achieve the desired zero trust outcome? So what the Army is going to do is we're going to do an end-to-end, -end, one through 152, internal Army analysis verification of our technology and our zero trust architecture that it can achieve the task that was directed, 
and then how do we validate the effectiveness. So we're going to lay that piece in. And then once we complete an internal Army assessment, we'll follow on with the red team, an external entity, doing the same thing in our environment when we don't know. And this idea is, does it work? Doesn't it? If it does, okay, now we can move on. Is this something that you'll do internally, meaning the Army will be the red teamers, you'll have Army red team, or will it be a contract? Do you know yet? Is it too early? No, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Army will do our internal assessments, but we will have external agency red teamers, uh, just to be very transparent, to ensure that we have the same look as another expert team. So definitely external. From a timing standpoint, again, uh, I know the Army and the rest of DOD is on a path to get to 2027, initial set of capabilities. I think you mentioned 45. Do you hope that you'll get this test and evaluation plan, you said starting summer 2024 and then really moving those blue and red teams in 2025 and beyond. What will what has to happen between now and then? Yeah, right now. So we have to continue to mature our architecture. We couldn't even do an internal assessment today uh, because there's a lot of specific capabilities that are not fully integrated. So you will not be able to get the desired effect. So once we get our foundational ICAM components in place, we have our foundational uh, endpoint security and compliance tool sets in place, uh, and we have the appropriate conditional data access controls for our data and applications. Uh, at that point, we're able to do end-to-end uh, visibility and actually testing of those capabilities. Right now, the Army's architecture is not to a fully integrated point to do that. We need a little more time. Colonel Michael Smith is director of the Army's Functional Management Office for Zero Trust, and he's director of the Unified Network Task Force. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.